God's holy and inspired word, Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Let's pray for the preaching of it now. Our Father and our God, we come once again to the preaching of the word. And in this text, Lord, we see the glory of Christ in some ways, in a way that no other epistle shows us his glory, at least not in such a condensed form. And so, Father, we know that no preacher is up to the task to show the glory of Jesus Christ. And we know it'll be your Holy Ghost who works through the minister now to show us the glory of Jesus. So we pray that you would give the Spirit of God to the preacher to enable him to do his work with faithfulness and diligence, ministering for your sake and not his own. And we pray that that same Spirit, the Spirit who inspired this text, would also rest on those ears that will now hear. Lord, your people are here. And like Moses, they say, we beseech you, Lord, show us your glory. And so we ask that you would show us your glory in Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, as the people of God, you are constantly facing pressure to abandon Jesus Christ. That's a constant theme in the New Testament, and it is the, uh, one of the main themes of the book that we're about to begin today. Uh, a book where the danger of apostasy is considered in uh, many ways more strongly than in every, any other New Testament epistle. It is, in a lot of ways, a foundational theme of the book. And so, in many ways, all of us must be aware of the danger of leaving Jesus Christ, because that is what the book is warning us against. And uh, for our time and, and day and our age in the Western world, you know it is becoming less popular to be a Christian, at least one who believes in the Word of God. As the word of God, there's a tremendous pressure, especially being brought to bear on our children to leave Christ, especially. Or maybe what will uh, discourage you in your walk with the Lord is maybe not societal pressure, though that is increasing. Maybe it's your own entanglement with sin that discourages you and makes you think that maybe I should just give up Jesus Christ. What's the point? It's hard wrestling with my sin and it discourages me. Maybe I need to go back to a kind of religion that we talked about that John the Baptist chastised us against this morning. A religion just of smells and bells where I can feel okay about myself because I have had a bit of water splashed on me or I have drunk a bit of the wine and taken of the bread. 
and I'm going to uh, walk away from the true faith. That was the case with the Hebrews, especially, as you'll see. And there is nothing new under the sun, which is why this book is the preserved word of God for all ages, beloved. You are going to face these same pressures, maybe in slightly different ways and maybe different nuances. But the core underlying principles of this book apply to every believer in every age. And you're not immune from the things that the Hebrews were facing whether it's persecution or discouragement in your sin or a world that is topsy-turvy. And this epistle is given to the church to show us the remedy. And what is the remedy? It's beautiful in this book and it's simple and plain. And sometimes we make this book more complicated than it should be. But the core message of the book is to look unto Jesus, an all-sufficient Savior and Lord, Superior to angels, superior to priests, superior to Moses, superior to the world. And to run your race with your eyes firmly fixed on him by faith. Think about the ways that the book talks about him. He is the author and finisher of our faith, the captain of our salvation. We are constantly exhorted to not be of those who shrink back, but persevere looking to Jesus. <laughs> Why is that, that, that great? You know, we look at the book in isolation so much, but we look at that chapter, Hebrews 11 is kind of self-contained, we think. But that is just another encouragement to look at how the faithful run the race when it is hard looking unto Jesus. Those are some of the central exhortations in the book. And I hope if you have a passing, even familiarity with the book, you hear that over and over again, as I have been preaching even this short time, the sufficiency and glory of Christ is all throughout this book. And our need to run our race looking to him is the central message of the book and how I intend to preach it. Today, we're going to limit ourselves, as I've already mentioned, to a few exhortations that in the months ahead, I hope to expand. But these three exhortations for today are found on your outline. And the first is to connect yourself to the background of the epistle. Sometimes we think we're not very much like these people. No, you need to connect with the background of the epistle. Uh, you need to second, behold the glory of Jesus that is found in this text and third, you are to run with endurance. It's hard. And that's why you have to look to Jesus. You need to run with endurance the race that is set before you, looking unto Jesus. Well, first, to connect with the background of the book. And I hope uh, you know it is always helpful to consider what you can about context and background for every bit of scripture you have. And, and Hebrews is going to maybe more than any other book in the New Testament challenge you a bit in that regard. Uh, it certainly has the most intrigue maybe outside of the book of Revelation um, as far as uh, uh, its context. Uh, but even Revelation is very quickly the church uh, did recognize it was John, the apostle, who wrote it. So I'm going to begin with the elephant in the room, which is the authorship of this epistle. And no one, you will note, is listed as the author in the book. No address, 
uh, in terms of salutation, like I, Paul, greet thee, um, it's anonymous. Now, traditionally, most of the church has seen this as the work of Paul, but uh, there's always been some controversy over that, uh, and it never has seemed to be entirely settled. And I want to encourage you, it wasn't liberals who always seemed to dispute Paul wrote anything, uh, but instead by Bible-believing men. Think, for instance, John Calvin. In his comments on Hebrews 2, verse 3, Calvin said, This passage indicates that this epistle was not written by Paul. That's John Calvin. And so from a surface glance, it does appear as if Hebrews 2 verse 3 indicates the author did not directly hear from the Lord Jesus. And we know Paul did. Um, And that was Calvin's difficulty with the epistle. Uh, And that text we will see will pose some difficulty for Pauline authorship. But there are ways of dealing with that if if you uh, still want to consider Paul as the author. And we'll get to that in the second chapter when we get there. Um, Various denominations have taken a stance on whether this is the writing of Paul. The Belgic Confession lists this epistle as Paul's in the list of the Pauline epistles. Um, But you'll notice that our confession of faith, the Westminster in the first chapter, does not list this as one of Paul's epistles. Uh, It's a deliberate choice, actually, because uh, Westminster chapter one on the Holy Scriptures is based on the Irish articles, which came before it. And the Irish articles actually included Uh, Hebrews as uh, Paul's. Uh, And most of the assembly actually did hold to Pauline authorship, uh, but they did not, and this is so important as you consider the assembly, they did not find it a matter to bind the conscience to. And that's what the confession of faith is meant to. Uh, There's something wise about their approach in matters of disputed things. Uh, And so we as a church cannot bind you to believe Paul wrote it either, as our confession does not bind you to that view. But you and I can believe that if you wish. Um, Another issue with Paul as the author is the Greek in the epistle is far beyond Paul's other epistles, way beyond. In fact, in some ways, the best Greek in the New Testament. The only books that rival it, and this might be interesting for you, are Luke and Acts, right? And I'll talk about Luke a bit later, but in the Greek, it's beautiful in the Greek. This is... Uh, really a wonderful book in the, in the Greek New Testament to, to read. Uh, it begins with these three words, uh, polymeros kai polyprotos, or uh, polyropos. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's got a kind of rhyme and meter, polymeros kai polytropos. There's, uh, that's our translation, sundry times in diverse manners. There's a, the author of it is not just writing, you know, boys and girls, you, you remember, there's a, a way to be competent with language, right? But then there's also a way to be a master of it, like a poet, right? Th- that takes a whole skill that I do not have and I do not possess. The author here is a man who's not just considering the words, but even the sound of the words. And it's a beautiful book in, in the Greek language. Um, the sound of the epistle as it was read was taken into consideration by the author, But all that aside, those problems aside, the theology of the epistle is very much Pauline, through and through. Uh, Whoever wrote it was either Paul or in Paul's inner circle. Uh, The epistle mentions Timothy in the final chapter. It mentions Italy as well. And so from the time of origin even, and maybe before that, there was the thought that this was Paul's work, but that a penman or a scribe 
actually wrote the words of Paul down. And I know you've come for a sermon and not a seminary lecture, so I'll give you a potential solution for you to consider that maintains Pauline authorship. And given the level of Greek here and his nearness to Paul, a good candidate throughout church history has been Luke being Paul's penman. Uh, Luke was in the habit of helping Paul. He was in Paul's inner circle and a close companion. At the end of his day, shut up in Rome in Italy, right? Paul wrote these mournful words to Timothy. Only Luke is with me. And given the proficiency of the Greek, Luke is certainly a good candidate. And there also, as we'll go through the epistle and we're going through the gospel according to Luke, there are phrases in Hebrews that only appear in Luke's writings. So I'll treat this letter as Paul's with the difficulties of the Greek language dealt by Luke's penmanship. Uh, That's an old view. Clement believed Paul wrote or preached this in Hebrew and Luke transcribed it into the Greek. Uh, I I wrote a paper at the seminary if you'd like to look at it. I've got it here if you'd you'd like to borrow it. But at the end of the day, we could spend the rest of our time and weeks on this matter. I'm uneasy focusing so much attention on the human authorship of this book. Because at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. This is God's word. And it's unprofitable to spend our time in these controversies for too long. This is inspired by the Holy Ghost. That letter is scripture. Do not think of them as Paul's words. And that's a problem we can sometimes have with the rest of the Bible where the authorship is very clear. Don't think of them as Paul's or or, or whoever's writings. Think of them as the Holy Ghost's words. You know, Paul wrote many things, right? He mentions other letters to the Corinthians that are lost. It's not Paul that's important. It's the Holy Ghost inspiring them. Those words never lose your focus. And Paul was not some sort of partner with the Holy Ghost, right? Some people think that that's not the doctrine of inspiration. The Holy Ghost used Paul to write this epistle for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Right. Second Peter one verse 21. The Holy Ghost was in the driver's seat in the writing of Hebrews. And at the end of the day, focus on that and put your controversies in their proper place. And you do, I hope, I trust, you hear the words of God in this epistle. Christ speaking to you. Maybe, uh, you know, people talk about a bucket list, right? Maybe put this on your glory list of the things that you will ask the Lord in glory. Or maybe, and this is part of, of heaven and the beauty of heaven, boys and girls, is we'll get to meet Paul, won't we? We'll get to meet Timothy. We'll get to meet Luke. And you think of all the questions you can ask and talk about their life and their experience. And these are things that I think if you put in their proper place, you will reserve mysteries like this and more eagerly anticipate glory. That's a wonderful way to use unresolved tensions in the church today. Anyhow, um, let's consider the original audience next. Those uh, Paul writes to, um, this is well known, are Jews somewhere in the dispersion, likely. Right? And more than any other recipients of any other epistles, these souls understood the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. They, they knew them well. We're going to consider that in more detail as the book unfolds. And what seems to be happening is they're under this pressure to abandon Jesus and go back to the old covenant worship. Types and shadows, animal sacrifices and a human priesthood. 
And in many ways, it seems like there was persecution and maybe even a struggle with their own sin at times that was breaking their resolve to be uh, followers of Christ. Let's just turn back. Life was much easier before Jesus. You know, some people have that experience. There's a struggle in many converts today and communities today. You don't have to be Jewish to feel it. Uh, Jewish converts today do feel it very acutely. I know converts from Judaism have lost their family. And all they have to do is just disavow Jesus and go back to the synagogue. And they would be returned to their family. But they are cast away. I know personally converts from Hinduism. I'm one myself. There's family and societal pressures. You lose all of the closeness you had with your family. I know converts you know, from Christ, uh, Chinese statism and communism, which is nothing more than atheism, right? They feel the pressure, a whole society of billions of people exerting pressure to just return even to a form of Christianity that's state-sanctioned, but is no Christianity at all. For all of us, we feel pressure to abandon Jesus. You know, time is going on, friends, and I already felt it as a, as a programmer in the video game business. You may not be very well accepted in your social settings because you are a believer who truly believes in the word of God and the message of Christ crucified. And so this book's message transcends that of Jews wanting to return to Second Temple Judaism. It far transcends that. Paul's primary exhortation is to have them remain with Jesus. Don't leave him. Think of the exhortation, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. He's constantly exhorting them. He constantly warns them of apostasy. And you and I need that warning too. He pleads, your soul will be lost forever if you leave Jesus he, he says this, the, the, the scripture preaches, for it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 6. There are terrible warnings all throughout of falling away from Jesus, applicable to Jew or Gentile. And the tenor of his pleading, especially against apostasy, is captivating. He exhorts them, press on by faith. And faith, you know, fills an entire chapter of the letter. So the last bit of background I want to leave for you before we move on is this. This does appear to be a sermon. A delivered sermon published into an epistle. You know, the conclusion of the sermon ends with a benediction in the last chapter, the 13th. And after the benediction uh, in 13, verse 22, it says this. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, meaning what has come before. For I've written a letter unto you in few words. It's, it's like he took a word of exhortation and wrapped it in a letter. Uh, Luke, again, Luke uses the same phrase, word of exhortation, to denote preaching in Acts. In Acts 13, verse 15, in Antioch, the rulers of the synagogue asked, 
Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And Paul proceeds to preach Christ, doesn't he? And there is an... No, I was talking to one of the elders earlier, and he had mentioned how many... Uh, at least one man has said, that this is a great... I love the book of Hebrews. And I don't know a single person who has not said that, by the way. Uh, you shouldn't say that. Um, but, but there is a sort of delight that many of God's people find in it, and they're drawn to it. And I think it is because it has the sermonic force to it. Uh, an, an apostolic sermon worthy of being emulated. There is exhortation. There is reproof. Ye have need of endurance. There is warmth. He counts himself as part of the people. Let us run the race. We are not those who shrink back. It's the classic homiletical marks of a sermon in here. And you see to the preacher, these people were dear to him. He knows how much he pleads for them over and over again, as a preacher should. Well, and as you've already heard, I hope, in the opening, the glory of Christ is all throughout you know, some commentators, they, they talk about this as almost like a, the book is a commentary on the Old uh, Testament priesthood. Certainly there are aspects of that. But that's not primarily what the book is about. It falls far short of the glory intended by Paul. Uh, the idea of the sermon, this sermon is Jesus is superior in every way. Compared to anything else, in him we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Do you see how Jesus is set as your anchor, your hope? And if you know, again, homiletics, you cannot help but see a masterful sermon in that. The cadence and rhythm and exhortation lay hold of Jesus So hold the specific teachings of the epistle in view of this overall thrust. And I know we could spend the rest of our time just in background. I hope at least some of this is profitable to orient your thoughts. So next, let us behold the glory of Jesus in this text. And uh, this sermon, wow, it begins with a bang, doesn't it? To dazzle your hearts and minds with the glory of Christ. To show you the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. Straight away. To hit you upside the head with Christology. In a way no other epistle has done in so short a time. In terms of number of verses. Look at the great economy of words. And consider the meaning when he says. God who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in times past. Unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. In two verses, verses 2 and 3, you have set before you a summary of the glory of Christ in a condensed way, unrivaled, frankly, by any other scripture I have ever found. Paul sets before you Jesus, friends, so that in your temptation, in your despair, in your struggles, 
you would compare who he is to whatsoever tempts you to leave him. And that's what he does here. He, he sets, without even setting his thesis, right? How often they tell you, set the thesis of whatever it is you're teaching. He doesn't even set his thesis statement. He just immediately hits you upside the head with Jesus. Friends, look at who Jesus is in these verses and look carefully, look intently into these verses. If you have ever cried with Moses, I beseech thee, Lord, show me thy glory. In our text, God shows you his glory in Christ, doesn't he? And when you have seen it, never forget it. In verse 2, God had spoken unto us in these last days by his son. If you want to hear God speak, you must go to Jesus, his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Matthew 17, verse 5. God speaks. First of all, we'll consider that next week. God speaks. What a glorious thing. He speaks to us, but he speaks through Jesus alone. If you want to hear from God, you must come to Jesus, the divine word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. God will not speak to you through prophets. God will be mute to you unless you hear Christ. Do not think you will ever hear a word from God outside of Jesus because you will not. You will not find God speak to you at the Buddhist temple. You will not find God speak to you at the Jewish synagogue. You will never hear God speak to you at the New Age yoga studio. You will only find God speak to you in Jesus. God himself said, hear ye him. You will never. And this is something for us to consider if we're ever tempted to leave. You will never hear God speak to you again until the day of judgment if you leave Jesus. Because he will only talk to you through Christ. At the judgment, if you leave the faith, he will ask, why did you leave my beloved son? Spend time in the word of God and hear it then as Christ's word to you. And if you do, God's pleasure is on you because he is pleased by his son and he is pleased by those who will hear his son. And that is the second point of Christ's glory in this text. He is the son of God. This speaks to his divinity, co-equal with the father, a member of the Trinity. I love the way the Nicene Creed puts it beautifully. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. That is Jesus Christ, your Savior. He is God Almighty. What a better Savior could you hope for? Do you not see how foolish it is to run away from anyone, run away from Jesus to anyone else? For in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Who can compare to Christ? The fullness of God in a human body. That's your Savior, child of God. How can you neglect so great a savior? How can you trample underfoot? This is going to be the language in the book. How could you trample underfoot the blood of God by departing from him? This is God's own son that we consider today. And as God's son, he is also here appointed heir of all things. All things. All things belong to Jesus, friends. 
everything, whether angels or nations or peoples, property or goods, all is Christ's. The father said to his son in the eighth verse of the second Psalm, ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And what God is doing is reminding the Hebrews, you know this Psalm, you know what was said of Christ. And so he reminds them of that. Friends, this is important for us as we consider uh, the audience. You are going to find the Holy Ghost constantly reminding you of truths you already know. Because you and I are in the habit of forgetting them when we need to know them most. The Hebrews clearly forgot that Christ would be the heir of all things. And instead they ran back to the, the tabernacle temple system. When he says, here is the heir of all things, my son. God said to Jesus, just ask of me and I shall give thee all things. Jesus has asked, hasn't he? Father, I ask. So after his resurrection, he has said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. The mediator king, the Messiah, the Christ Jesus. This is your savior once more. You know, as the people of God, to know that your savior has all things, has all power, reassures you that he has everything he needs to save you and save you to the uttermost. You know, some of you know, uh, because you've uh, complained in a sanctified way, that your job does not always give you everything you need to get the job done. That's a common complaint for workers, isn't it? But not Jesus. Jesus has everything he needs to get the job done because he has been given all things. So he has everything necessary to save you. If you remain with him, people of God, he will save you to the uttermost and you never need to doubt it. Your salvation is in his almighty hand and it's not in yours. And Paul reminds you elsewhere, we'll consider this again in a couple of weeks, of what you have in Christ And this really needs to be uh, 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 something that should baffle us in a way. In Romans 8, verse 17, he says, If you are the children of God, then you are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Extraordinary. If you are in Christ, you inherit all things with Christ. Here's the if. You endure with him to the end. Next, we see here in this text, Christ is our creator. It says, by whom he made the worlds, uh, literally the, uh, the ages, essentially. As Colossians 1.16 says, for by him, speaking of Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him, but also Why? And for him. Christ is your creator, friends. You were made for him, as were all things. He is the heir of all things. And God created all things through him and for him. All the worlds are included in that, boys and girls. Look at the stars some night, boys and girls. Look at the galaxies. And you see the power of Jesus Christ, don't you? Uh, The power... To bring a universe into being by the word of his power is the same power through the word of God that saves you. 
The power to create is the same power to recreate and regenerate. If he can create the Andromeda galaxy, boys and girls, how I am assured that he can create a new heart in me. I will be sanctified and there will be a resurrection of my own body like of Christ's because he has the power to create and recreate. Our Savior can do it all. And so when I look to Jesus, I am assured I will be saved and that he can create in me a new heart of flesh in my stony heart's place. He can vivify, he can bring to life what is now mortified. And there is still more. It's as though the apostle cannot contain himself about Jesus. If we could exclaim about our Savior in the same way. He says he is the brightness of his that is God's glory. Oh, our Savior is the very radiance of God. You know, when Jesus speaks of us as the light of the world, ours is a reflected light, isn't it? Ours is like the light of the moon and not like the light of the sun. But Jesus here is the brightness of God's glory. He has the very nature of God. His brightness is divine glory. We considered it in Psalm 104. The glory that we as sinful men and women could never approach on our own. The glory Isaiah saw when he said, woe is me, I am undone. And John said that Isaiah saw Christ's glory in his gospel. And yet in Jesus, what The text is saying we have the brightness of the glory of God in a way that is approachable. Moses, I said again, I I couldn't help but think of Moses' word in Exodus 33. Moses said, I beseech thee, Lord, show me thy glory. And in Jesus, he shows you his glory. At the Mount of Transfiguration, you saw a peek into Christ's glory, didn't you? The brightness of God's glory. And in the book of the Revelation, don't you see the glory of God in Jesus as he appears as a man who possessed the very glory of God? His eyes as a flame of fire, his hair white like wool, his feet like fine brass burned in a furnace. His voice, the sound of many waters, his countenance as the sun shineth in his strength. The brightness of God's glory in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, he's saying to the Hebrews, you will not find God's glory in the temple, friends. You will not find the Shekinah glory there. You will only find it in Jesus. He also is the express image of his person. Christ possesses the same divine nature and the same divine essence as the Father and Holy Ghost. Same in substance, boys and girls. Equal in power and glory, right? We spoke about this a bit, so I'm not going to retread this for tonight. Uh, We spoke about this when we considered Christ's personality in Luke's gospel. One person, the human nature, taking on the personality of God himself, the Son of God in Christ. And still, we're not done. There is far more about our Savior here in this introduction. Christ Look at this, is upholding all things by the word of his power. Boys and girls, if Jesus Christ ceased to hold all things together, all things would immediately be undone and disappear. All things would wink out of existence in an instant. 
even the unbeliever and the devil himself depend on their existence on Jesus Christ. Isn't that remarkable that the very accuser of your soul depends on his existence, on your Savior? All those who persecute you depend on their existence, on your own Savior. And, And for yourself, you need to understand that not only are you bought by the blood of Christ, you are not an independent, self-made creature yourself, beloved. You owe your continued existence to Jesus. Not just your creation, but even moment by moment. And if so, the question is, do you not owe your allegiance to Him? Do you not owe everything to Him? You are not to turn away from Him who holds your very existence in His power You know, the power that is in Christ is remarkable. He keeps all of this running effortlessly. Without breaking a sweat, friends. And it's incredible. Incredible, the power of your Savior. Next, after giving us this introduction to the person of Christ, he now talks about the work of Christ. Even in this intro, uh, consider these glorious words. That should really strike the heart of every child of God. He had by himself purged our sins. No bulls or goats ever purged sin. You're going to see that later in the book. But the Lamb of God, Jesus on Calvary's cross. He by himself purged all. Not some. All our sins. All by himself. Without the aid of any other creature, he cried out, it is finished. All he, all by himself, to go to the cross as our substitute. How does 1 Peter 2.24 speak? Who his own self, his own self, bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. All by himself, this Jesus has purged all of our sins. How could we leave such a Savior, friends? And those blessed words of assurance purged our sins, purged, removed them, all of our sins. They're gone by his work. There's no need, boys and girls, for you to purge your sins. You cannot. He himself has done it. As Hebrews 10 says this beautifully, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where their remission of sins of these is, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Purged, gone, far as east is from west, never to be remembered, eradicated completely and entirely solely by the work of Jesus, Son of God. And the last part of Christ's glory is seen in that he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Beautiful. Christ exclaimed, it is finished. He died. Three days later, he was raised from the dead. And 40 days later, I believe we heard that in the catechism, in the ascension. 40 days later, he ascended into the heavens in the human nature, where he is now crowned with glory and honor, sitting at God's right hand. His work is finished telling us when he sat down that our salvation is accomplished. 
The high priests, you remember, in the temple, they stood while they ministered in the temple. Their work was never over. We we're going to see that in the, in the book later on. But Christ, after he all by himself purged our sins, sits down and is at rest. You will hear in the 10th chapter, by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And so our Jesus, not only has he done this thing for us, he has earned his reward and he is at God's right hand, the most exalted place anyone could be. There is no one and there is nothing you can look to that is so highly advanced in God's favor than the God man. No one. No one you can look to, friends. All honor is given to Christ by God. He has the seat and the place of honor. And that is your Savior if you are in Him. Just summarized real quickly for us in these first three verses. Hebrews 1 points you to the glory of Jesus. A glory that surpasses, we're going to consider that uh, shortly, the glory of the angels. We saw that in our call to worship. They are ministers of fire. Right? And Christ's glory excels theirs. His glory is greater than Moses because he is the, the sun over the house. His glory is greater than the tabernacle. His glory is the very God in, glory of God in the flesh to be your Lord and Savior. And so the question you must always ask yourself is, what could I possibly compare Jesus Christ my Lord to? Where could I go? To find someone like Jesus. And the answer is you can go nowhere. You can go nowhere to find anyone like Christ. And if you establish that. You will ask yourself. Why would I ever give him up? Why would I not listen to this Jesus? Why would I not trust in Jesus? Why would I give him up? And why would I, why would I shrink away from him? When persecution and troubles come over me. Whether sin tempts me to leave him, whether the world tempts me to leave him, whether persecution tempts me to leave me, leave him, whether famine or nakedness or the sword, I always ask, who could I find like Jesus, the pearl of great price? The book of Hebrews invites you to become lost in Christ's perfections, to meditate on them and drink of them, and you will find that if you do, you will run the race with endurance and strength. And that's our final heading and will also serve as our conclusion. You know, the rest of this letter is going to unfold and reveal these glorious perfections of your Savior in beautiful ways, especially His priestly work. But this exhortation is central to the book and it is to establish the glory of Jesus, but to establish it in a way that will help you endure. As I see it, the central exhortation of the book is found in the second to last chapter, the 12th chapter. And it's a text that I cite often because it is a text that is central to the Christian life. And it is the central exhortation of the book coming after Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12, verses 2 to 3. Uh, I'll actually read the entirety from verse 1. Wherefore. Seeing we also are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience 
the race that is set before us. And here it is, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Is that not a glorious, glorious way to run the Christian life? Hebrews is not merely a commentary on Leviticus, friends. Yes, you will grow to appreciate the Old Testament in ways you never will otherwise. But when commentators say that it is merely a a commentary on Leviticus, they miss the point of the book, which is this exhortation. Run with patience the race that is set before you and look to Jesus. And how do you know who you're looking at? You look at him in this text and you understand who Jesus is and lay aside every weight, lay aside the sin that easily besets you. And you're to run and run with patience and run while beholding his glory day to day. And if you would keep the glory of Christ burning in your heart and mind before you always ever present in your life, you will put away sin. You will endure persecution. You will endure distress. You will endure nakedness and the sword and all that other stuff in Romans chapter 8. The glory of the Lord Jesus will so bedazzle your eyes of faith that the darkness of the world and the darkness in your own soul will be overshadowed by him. His glory will sanctify you as you look to him, his person and his work, both of which you have seen are already on display in the introduction. His glory will make you cheerful and joyful, come what may. He has become to you the pearl of great price after all, and you are enraptured by him. And that is why you cannot understand that great exhortation. It maybe means nothing to you today to let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, until the Holy Ghost has shown you the great glory of Jesus. In the scripture. Well. If you are tempted. To abandon the savior. Especially you boys and girls. Who are young in the faith. Christ is asking. After he has shown you his glory. Will you also leave me? As so many have. So many. Have become apostates. Friends, you know it, maybe even in your own life, you know people in your life that have abandoned Jesus. But after he has shown you his glory in this text, he wants you to say with Peter from the heart saying to this Jesus, Lord, to whom else shall we go? Who else can compare to the majesty of Jesus Christ that we have seen in this text? Who else has the power to save me? Who else can pay for all my sins? Who else has loved me? The very radiance of the glory of God has loved me. Who else will care for me and assuredly bring my soul to glory? Only you who sit at the right hand of the majesty on high and has purged all my sins. Let that then serve as our introduction to this most blessed epistle. We'll expand on that theme as the epistle unfolds. But may the Holy Ghost then help us run and endure the race by continually casting our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Amen. Please rise for prayer.